Last time, we talked about the liberating philosophy that is existentialism. Can you give us a quick refresher? Ooh, Ethan, you're putting me on the spot here. Um, <clears throat> but I guess the whole point of this show is to actually learn something, so if I can't recall what we talked about last time, then that might mean we're not doing the best job. Are you Are you just saying words to give yourself time to think? <laughs> oh, never me. No. Man, I just carry the show, don't I? What would you do without me? Existentialism can be seen as liberating because it says there is no predetermined purpose to life. And if there's no built-in or inherent purpose, then you're free to make what you want out of it and give your own meaning to it. Also, radical freedom, angst, authenticity, and all that hoopla. Oh, oh. Wow, okay, okay. So you remember perfectly, and you sat there letting me make fun of you? I wanted you to feel superior before I crushed you with the power of my mind. It's big brain time. Ugh, you're ridiculous and far too happy. I know what'll fix that. We can crush your spirits with some nihilism. Do your worst. Don't be Aristotle, by your Plato knowledge, cause we got our game I like. We'll Vinny, Vitty, Vici, and Mustachio, Nietzsche, and we'll never miss the marks, cause I'm awesome, he's heathen, and this is our podcast show. Welcome back. Podcast. I talk, you learn, wholesome wholesomes. Yes. Thank you for that lovely and eloquent introduction. To translate a bit, I am wholesome, and he is heathen. This is a show where we learn about philosophy together, and I see if I can make some references to pop culture along the way. Yeah, yeah, stop wasting time. Last time, we started by talking about the meaning of life. It's a pretty big question, and something we've all considered and thought about at some point or another. Maybe you figured it out. Give me a call if you have. <laughs> maybe you've come up with an answer, but maybe you haven't, and who could blame you? It's literally the biggest question of life. No one's going to blame you for not solving the mysteries of the universe by yourself. That's where philosophy comes to the rescue. Existentialism approaches the question by saying there's no pre-programmed meaning of life. You exist first, and you're free to come up with your own meaning and live accordingly. So that's great, but it's really easy to confuse it with nihilism, which is far darker. And I'm pretty sure that confusion is why people think of existentialism as such a scary thing and shy away from it. So should we call an existential crisis a nihil crisis? Not nihilistic cri <clears throat> how, would, how would you say that? A, a crisis from existentialism is an existential crisis. A crisis from nihilism is a nihil crisis? That sounds so weird. No, uh, if, you're, <laughs> if you're using it as an adjective, it's nihilistic. But nihilistic crisis wouldn't be right either. It really is an existential crisis, or maybe a midlife crisis, because we all of a sudden realize how much potential there is in life, and they're kind of wasting it all away, sitting on our butts, watching TV shows and YouTube videos that we don't actually care about, while our eventual death just marches closer, minute by minute. Nihilism is a bit different. Oh, well, <laughs> we're, we're already off to a depressing start. Um, I'm a bit scared to ask, but... What's nihilism, then? See, existentialism says you don't come pre-packaged with a purpose, but you can find your own. Nihilism says you don't come pre-packaged with a purpose, and no purpose exists in the world. You can't find your own, you can't make your own, it doesn't exist. There is no meaning to life, morality and moral principles are made up, nothing matters, life is meaningless. Rick and Morty sum it up pretty well. Nobody exists on purpose, nobody belongs anywhere, everybody's gonna die. Come watch TV. 
Well, alrighty then. I guess we can pack up our bags and jump off that cliff you mentioned last episode. Dude, why would you even pack your bags if you're going to jump off a cliff? That just seems pointless. If it's all meaningless, then packing a bag or not packing a bag is equally is equally meaningless, right? So, what does it matter if I do or don't? <laughs> you're totally nailing this one. You're right. <laughs> F it. Do whatever you want. <laughs> it's what Deadpool did in one comic run. In classic Deadpool breaking the fourth wall style, he figured out that he's in a comic book. Uh, once he realized that his world isn't real and nothing matters, he went on a killing spree. Well, killing isn't anything new for Deadpool, is it? The lovely, murderous R rating is what makes him so lovable, I guess. Yeah, no, I feel like murderous and lovable don't belong in the same sentence. But yeah, killing isn't new, but killing everyone is new. And I mean everyone. He wipes out the entire Marvel Universe. Heroes, villains, random people, everybody. Juggernaut? The Hulk? Dude, everyone he has to come up with intricate plots for how to take out the tougher ones like the hulk wolverine and thanos but that's what made that comic series really fun yeah sounds real fun killing everyone <laughs> yeah i mean i guess that really wouldn't be my um you know up until it starts to get it's 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 graphic it's sad <laughs> all right I, I might check it out what's it called oh yeah no it's a, it's called deadpool kills the marvel universe <laughs> okay very clear all right then <laughs> Yeah, Deadpool realizes that he's in a comic book, so that's why he becomes a nihilist. But we're not, so there's got to be more to unpack here. It sounds like the most depressing philosophy that exists in all the land, but philosophers don't just make statements, right? They have they must have logic to that conclusion somehow. And again, I'm afraid to ask, but how did they get to this grim conclusion? Like a lot of philosophies, this too has existed in some form or another for ages. We didn't just come up with it recently. But it was more formalized in the last couple centuries, and the word nihilism was born in the early 1800s. But what brings us to this bleak way of seeing life? Who hurt the first nihilist? Alright. It's time. I've put it off as long as I can. And put, put what off? You know, I really thought I was going to be forced to mention his name last episode, but I, I fought really hard not to. Fought who? I'm the entirety of our production team. Are you censoring yourself? All unimportant matters, my friend, for it is time to introduce the man, the myth, the mustache himself, Friedrich Nietzsche. Ooh, do it again. Nietzsche. <laughs> Tingles me. I'm surrounded by idiots. That last bit was Nietzsche's voice, actually. Really? No, of course not. That's Scar. You know that. Mm. I mean, <laughs> you're the one who added it in in post-production. Can we talk about post-production right now? We haven't done it yet, so that's like current us talking as if we're future us talking about current us. What? Never mind. Back to it. Um... Everyone's heard of Nietzsche, but you make it sound like the dude's a supervillain. Supervillain to some, but super something for sure to the entire field of philosophy. I gather he was a titan in the field. Oh man, he would love to hear you say that about him. And there's tons we could say about Nietzsche. He's the guy who said God is dead, right? God is dead, and we killed him. <laughs> yeah, that's probably his most famous line. Alright, besides deity's side, what else is he known for? Oh, so much. The Apollonian and Dionysian juxtaposition, master-slave morality, the Ubermensch, and a buttload of books and other ideas. And of course, his, who could forget his whale of a mustache? But right now, 
we're going to talk about his relation to nihilism. Is that why people think he's a supervillain? Because he created the darkest philosophy? Ooh, yeah, this is a good time to make a distinction. I don't think Nietzsche was actually a nihilist, and I'll talk about why in a bit, but he's always brought up in discussions of it because he did write about it a lot. But think of it more of as a starting point, not the end conclusion. Okay, so what is the starting point? For a long time, Christianity, and you can say religion in general, provided meaning understanding, and defined values. His famous statement, God is dead, isn't talking about an actual death of a deity. That wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. It's more like, um, if I said the ancient Greek gods are dead, we would understand that I'm not saying that they existed and now they're not alive anymore. Oh, okay. You're, you're more saying that the teachings and values that came from the ancient Greek religion aren't followed anymore. Right. It's time and its influence are over. It's dead. That's what Nietzsche is saying by God is dead. He lived in the late 1800s, and ever since the enlightenment of the 1700s, the influence of religion was kind of declining, you know? I mean, think about life before then. I'm not talking about every situation ever, but for the most part, everything was a monarchy. The church set values and ruled how to live your life. Yeah, the pope was the one who crowned the kings and queens, and the right to rule was claimed to be divine mandate. Nowadays, even if a lot of European countries have silly monarchs, they don't actually rule anything. They're figureheads. And ever since the Enlightenment and thinkers like Voltaire, Adam Smith, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, uh, John Locke, Kant, Goethe, instead of religion, a lot of our understanding of the world started coming from science and rationality. The Enlightenment was also called the Age of Reason, and government started changing too. Right, we talked about the social contract in an older episode. Those are the ideas you're talking about that spread during the Age of Enlightenment. Exactly. So Nietzsche is saying that the influence of religion is declining, or even that the Age of Religion is over. But monarchies on the decline and democracies start popping up, that, that's good stuff. People started thinking more freely, and we're more independent. It, how does that make life meaningless? Everything was getting better. Well, the thing is, with religion, there's a predefined meaning. Everything makes sense. And even if it's difficult, you can take comfort in knowing that a creator is pulling all the strings behind the scenes. And even if your life sucks, life as a whole and the world makes sense because someone or something, like something out there is controlling it. But with the decline of religion... There were new realities, and that's what Nietzsche wrote about. So without a god, life has no meaning. I guess that's one reason to believe. The nihilists put in terms of cold science. We're sacks of meat and water, walking around creating more sacks of meat and water. And we all live on a wet rock which orbits a completely average star. Our solar system isn't in a special place in our own galaxy. I mean, honestly, if the galaxy was a city, we'd be way out in the outskirts. Technically, we're part of the city, but going to any of the main downtown attractions or the cool hangout spots would be a whole trip. And <laughs> even our galaxy is nothing special. All right, I know you've heard this before, but there are quite literally 100 to 400 billion stars just in our galaxy. And there's somewhere between 100 to 200 billion galaxies. If you think you grasp the meaning of those numbers, think again, because you're definitely wrong. I mean, I absolutely grasp them. I think you just need to open up your... <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 <laughs> I, know, I know what you mean, but my mind is blown every time I think about it. Something on that scale is actually unimaginable to our brains. And I think you're right about that on an evolutionary level. Our brains are good at patterns and linear thinking. If the animal were hunting... 
or being hunted by, I guess, is at point A right now. It'll be at point B in a few seconds. We can we can just look and figure that out. We're good at that. Yeah, that's, that's probably the same thing as playing catch. We can see how fast the ball is going and figure out how long it's going to take to reach us and if we need to move around to catch it. But we're terrible at understanding exponential rates. There are a few reasons people aren't good at saving money for retirement, and we don't need to get into all that right now, but not understanding compound interest and exponential growth is one of them, and we're just as terrible at understanding massive numbers, because that's not something we've ever had to do or deal with until pretty recently. Yeah, like government debt and borrowing and all that. It's so frustrating when people compare millions and billions, let alone, dare I say it, trillions. Because they're not just a little bit different, their whole world's different. Oh man, yeah, that's a really good one. I'm the one who studied economics, I should have thought of that. Mm -hmm. And in this vast universe that we can't truly comprehend, we're not special. Carl Sagan said, we're nothing more than a cosmic moat of dust. And we could be wiped away at any moment. I remember reading an article on Crack.com way back in the day that talked about how fragile our existence is. There are a ton of things in the universe that could destroy our planet in an instant. There's nothing we can do about it. Did you know black holes move and they're hard to see? So one could be coming for us right now. Dude, we could be in a false vacuum state. A gamma ray burst. Or even just a big enough asteroid. It's pretty easy to understand that one and we've got no defense against it. And that kind of stuff has happened to loads of other planets all over. Yeah, I mean, we've been hit before. R.I.P. Dinosaurs. Cosmically, we're not special and life on this planet is very fragile and not guaranteed in any way. And the crazy thing is that the universe is uncaring. Obviously we're important to us and you're important to me. Aww. But if our planet was wiped out tomorrow and all of humanity, past, present, and future, gone in an instant, you know what would happen? The universe wouldn't blink, our galaxy would keep spinning, and other planets keep orbiting, and... Nothing would change or notice our disappearance. Took the words right out of my mouth. That's why the Nihilists say that there's no meaning to our existence. We're not here for any reason. We just are here. For now. Yeah, you're getting into the spirit. <sighs> and you said something about morality being meaningless too. <laughs> sure. If you even want to consider something like morals. Bro, if nothing matters, why would morals? But yeah, moral nihilism says that morals are completely made up. They don't exist at all. Is that a necessary belief? You said moral nihilism, which makes it sound like a subcategory. So is it necessary to the main philosophy? Kind of the same as there are different flavors of anarchy, which you can learn all about in our anarchy episode. There are flavors to a lot of the philosophies we talk about, and there are a few flavors of nihilism, but we don't need to get into that. Nothing has meaning. Base, death, stuff, got it, sure. But it's hard to accept that life has no meaning. That's, that's pretty extreme. Not to mention unsettling. I was reading an article just the other day, actually, titled, What's a Stegosaurus For? And what drew me to it was a subtitle, which read something like, Nobody expects atoms and molecules to have purposes. Why then do we expect life and living things to? Ooh, that sounds interesting. Because of dinosaurs. Atoms are for nerds. It was written by a philosophy professor named... Nerd. <laughs> named uh, Michael Roos. And he starts off talking about how his favorite dinosaur is the Stegosaurus. Oh yeah, the one with the things on its back. That's a good pick. My favorite is the Leopleurodon. Yeah, no one cares. Back to the Stegosaurus. <laughs> Professor Roos says that thinking where we're searching for a meaning or purpose is called theological thinking. It is, quote, the kind of thinking biologists use when they wonder how dinosaur bodies worked. 
They're asking what was the purpose of the plates? What end did the plates serve? Were they for fighting? Were they for attracting mates? Were they for heat control? This kind of language is teological, from telos, the Greek for end. It is language about the purpose or goal of things, what Aristotle called their final causes. And it is something that the physical sciences have decisively rejected. There's no sense for most scientists that a star is for anything, or that a molecule serves an end. But when we come to talk about living th things, it seems very hard to shake off the idea they have purposes and goals. Okay, so it's kind of a double standard that we expect living things to have purposes. But, but I mean, living things are different from non-living things, right? If we go back to the subtitle, we don't expect atoms and molecules to have purposes, and at the end of the day, we're just sacks of meat and water made up of tons and tons of atoms. Living things aren't for anything at all. They just are. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, I guess, nerd. Thank you, thank you. No, not, not you, the professional nerd, the actual professor, the, whose name I forgot. We don't expect a star to have a purpose, and we don't expect a molecule to have a purpose. Why do we expect us to have a purpose? I don't know if I agree, but the point of the show isn't to convince me, just to learn. So the professor nerd is doing a good job. And what about me? Yeah, you're doing an okay job. Try harder. Speaking of try, we, <laughs> we have to try to find meaning, don't we? Even if we don't figure it out, we have to try to find some purpose. Otherwise, what's what's the point? What are we doing? And that's where we come to absurdism. You're absurdism. I'm truly, deeply sorry. Good. To really understand absurdism, you have to channel the spirit of legendary Frenchman Albert Camus. That's why I'm smoking a cigarette right now. You're not. You're very clearly not. I can see you. Metaphorically. What, what does that even mean? Are you developing metaphorical cancer? <laughs> Absurdism is the human desire to seek inherent meaning in a purposeless, chaotic, and meaningless universe. Sounds a lot like nihilism. Kind of like applied nihilism. Existentialism, nihilism, and absurdism all stem from the same root, that we don't occupy any important place in existence. We're not special. But it's a commonplace thing to search for meaning. We normally use the word absurd to mean something ridiculous, but in philosophy, capital A absurd is the contradiction between our search for meaning and the inability to find purpose. The conflict between those two is the absurd. Walk me through it a bit more, I'm still not really seeing the difference. Existentialism leaves room for personal meaning. Nihilism is absolute in stating there is no meaning anywhere. Absurdism is not necessarily about what is or isn't, but about people and our struggle. Without humans, nihilism still makes sense, and maybe it makes more sense. But absurdism can't exist without people, because it's about the human condition. It's about the human condition. I like that. It seems warmer, or in touch with our lives. It doesn't always have to be about truth or virtue or other grand topics. Sometimes it's more beneficial to focus on our personal human struggles. But it does still deal with the nature of existence. And one of Camus' novels that, unfortunately, could ring true during these COVID times is The Plague. Mm. He wrote this back in 1947 about a fictitious plague that ravages a town in Algeria. And through the plague, he explores how fragile our lives are, that we're balanced on an edge, and life can be extinguished in an instant. We act like we're immortal, and that we're progressing technologically and overcoming the struggles of the past, 
Some of the townspeople even talk about how their time is different from history, and they really can't believe something as historical as a plague could be killing people in modern day. A plague does sound especially biblical. But we can't escape death. Even as a quarter of their fellow townies die, characters act like it would be ridiculous for them to get the illness. But Camus is trying to show that we can't progress past death. And he's not saying we should panic either. Panicking is for a temporary danger, something that threatens us momentarily. But our true plague isn't temporary. It's inescapable and a constant. For our true plague is death. Ooh, deep man. So deep. There's a part where a clergyman speaks before the gathered public and says that the plague is a punishment for depravity. But the doctor in the book doesn't accept that. And when we look back at history and human sacrifices that were made to appease the gods and um, like end the famines or ensure the sun continues rising or to bring rains for the crops, we look at those as pretty nonsensical. And the doctor thinks seeing the plague as a punishment is equally nonsensical. There's a scene where he watches a baby die and talks about how suffering is random and it's not an ethical force. I don't know. I actively suffer with you, and that's my choice. Not random, but it most certainly is punishment. You wound me. (laughs) My favorite work of Camus, though, is The Myth of Sisyphus, a great read from the very first line to the very last. Who's Sisyphus? An ancient Greek guy, but he's not important until the last section of the book. The title character isn't important until the end of the book. Hey, man, how many books have you written? Three. Really? Yeah, they're not published, but they're novel length, and I read them to my stuffed animals on occasion, so I will count them. Well, alright, um, props to you, you lonely weirdo, (laughs) but let Camus write how he wants to write. He won the Nobel Prize in Literature, and he was like the second youngest guy to get it, so he's allowed to do as he pleases. Dang, well, okay. In that case, please continue. Ooh, actually, Jean-Paul Sartre from our last episode also won the Nobel Literature Prize, but he turned it down. (laughs) You can do that? Why? He didn't want to be part of the system and thought it would limit him. But back to the myth of Sisyphus. The book begins with, quote, There is but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Oh, bam! Hitting us from the start. This dude doesn't waste time, does he? Quote, Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. All the rest, whether or not the world has three dimensions, whether the mind has nine or twelve categories, comes afterwards. Why is suicide even a question, let alone the most serious question? Absurdism talks about how there is no meaning, but we keep searching for one anyway. It's all meaningless. It's absurd. Nothing we do matters, and we're just marching toward death, so why even bother with it? Camus' most important question is basically, why do we bother living if we know the end? Dare I ask? Don't worry. It actually has a happy ending. (laughs) He says we should start with the question of suicide, because if we shouldn't keep living, then... Why even bother with other questions like morality and truth and justice and all that other BS? But he concludes with Sisyphus. Who you still haven't properly introduced. I'm so sorry, Sisyphus. He's so rude. (laughs) Sisyphus 
is an ancient Greek dude who got in a bunch of trouble with the gods repeatedly, actually. And <laughs> like his a boss. punishment, his final, like when they got fed with, fed up with him, his punishment is that he has to push a boulder up a mountain. That's tough enough alone. But when it reaches the top, it's going to roll all the way back down. And he has to return to the bottom and push it all the way back up the mountain on an endless loop for all of eternity. There are a lot of punishments out there, but that sounds far worse than life in prison or the death sentence. It's like if hell was working in an office, which doesn't sound like hell at first, but the coffee is always burned and the stapler is always out and the paperwork is pointless, like office space. But, you know, even worse, because pushing a boulder sounds terrible. Yeah, it's pointless. And Camus was trying to make a comparison to how most of us live our lives. So that office space reference is on point. Most of us do a lot of pointless things, kind of like Sisyphus, the drudgery of a job you hate to buy things you don't need and that don't make you happy. It seems like the worst punishment, but Camus says he's most interested in when Sisyphus is walking back down the mountain. He knows full well that he's about to start pushing the boulder all over again. And when he realizes, when Sisyphus comes to term with the futility of his actions, he can open his mind to the absurdity of his situation, the absurdity of his life, and he can finally accept it. And once he arrives at that acceptance, then, then he can be at peace. The last line of the book is, one must imagine Sisyphus happy. Oh, like my dude the Big Lebowski. The dude? That's the one. He's absurd? This one sounds like a hard sell. No, no, for real. Now, I'll be honest, I just kind of spitballed that the Big Lebowski was absurdist, so I did a classic research move. You googled the Big Lebowski plus absurdism? I googled the Big Lebowski and absurdism, and I found this amazing piece from a college student named Joel Harker. Tried to find a way to reach out to him, came up flat, but if he happens to be one of our millions and trillions of listeners... Ugh, big numbers again. And thanks for the eye-opening piece. But check this, the Big Lebowski is the myth of Sisyphus. Yeah, that's going to require some serious explanation. Well, the most eye-catching piece of evidence is the main motif of the movie. Bowling. As pointless a sport as curling or golf. You might even say absurd. But that's the thing. Bowling is a one-for-one one on the Sisyphus myth. You're sending a boulder or a bowling ball up. Oh, okay, yeah. And then it comes right back down. Over and over again until the game ends. Exactly. Okay, yeah, that's pretty good, but are we sure that's not just a coincidence? Uh, considering they go out of the way to refer to their debt collectors as nihilists, call them cowards, and brawl with them in a parking lot, I can assure you that it ain't the most unintentional thing in the world. While John Goodman's character is obsessed with the rules of the game to the point of threatening gun violence, the Big Lebowski is content to just play the game and exist. Everything in the movie happens in and around him, but virtually nothing in the movie happens because he makes it happen. He just happen to have the same name as a very important guy. Okay, yeah, if they're fighting guys and calling them nihilists, I can kind of see how absurdism is fighting back against a nihilism. Wow, <laughs> I just thought it was a goofy, kind of weird film, but totally, that's, okay, that's all clearly intentional. Yeah, especially when the Big Lebowski has a dream sequence where he's running from the bowling ball but then gets trapped inside. Then he gets to ride with the boulder till the end. Hmm. I don't think Sisyphus is happy about that part either. It's just that after coming to terms with his situation, 
and the absolute futility of it, once he realizes he can't change his life through any action of his own, he can accept it. Well, you know, one good compromise I've heard of from some people who agree that we're not special is that the purpose of life is to be alive. Enjoy the time we get to be alive. Smell the roses. That's a pretty good middle ground to me. Yeah, that's cheerful. But too cheerful. Mm. Remember that philosophy, just like math and science and facts everywhere, it, it doesn't care how you feel. Something is either true or it's not. Sorry, bud, nothing personal. And nihilism says that there's no meaning at all, period. So we can try to be cheerful and say things like, find your own meaning. But even that is human given. The universe doesn't care and it's not really there. So there's no saving grace with nihilism. A lot of people um, talk about the nihilism of today's society. And what they're really talking about is values that they don't agree with. They advocate different ways to cure nihilism, but they're mistaking nihilism for discontent. I mean, the word means something. You can't just change it. (laughs) Sure, there are lots of issues with the modern psyche, but trying to cure nihilism is like trying to cure the wetness of water. For those who agree with it, it's a fact, not a good or bad thing, and not something that can be changed. So don't necessarily be depressed or pessimistic. Your attitude is something you can change, but you're saying the nature of the world is something you don't control. Exactly. And that's a good transition to what Nietzsche and Camus advocate in the face of nihilism or absurdism. But but we can't cure it. Right, right. You can't change existence, but you can live your life one way or another. You can't change the fact that water is wet, but you can bathe in it, or brew some beer in it, or just drink it straight up. Preferably don't combine the bath water and the drinking water. Hey man, you do you. But (laughs) remember, uh, I mentioned that Nietzsche wasn't a nihilist? Both he and Camus advocate fighting back. Nietzsche says it's super easy to simply go about your life uncaring or unaffected. You know, he was actually very against drinking because he thought that alcohol numbs the existential pain of living. Isn't that what you're usually going for with your drinking? That's neither here nor there. (laughs) But it is a reason I think Nietzsche may have been a (laughs) supervillain. He really did, though, think that alcohol and religion both pacify us. We combat boredom through distraction, and alcohol makes us feel better and not fight back and not really care. It prevents our will to power, as he called it. Hmm. Rage. Rage against the dying of the light. Or against life in this situation, I guess. Yeah. Nietzsche thinks we can be better. We can be more. And Camus also says something similar. He says we have to rebel. That's punk. He wrote a book called The Rebel. That's super punk. The best line from it is, I rebel, therefore I exist. That's the most punkiest punk quote ever. Thought you'd like that one. <laughs> yeah, buddy. They they both believed in art and creativity as a means to fight back. Nietzsche encourages us to be more than what we are. It's easy to live our regular lives just comfortably, but he sees more potential and he wants us to rise up. Camus thinks the only rational thing to do in the face of meaninglessness in the face of meaninglessness, is to be defiant. Shake your fist at the world. For real. And he doesn't think we can get rid of the absurd, but rather we should live in spite of it. Yeah, as an authority on the matter, I officially declare Camus to be an awesome punk. And 
Here's a more modern philosopher who also talks about absurdism, Thomas Nagel. He's an American philosopher, still alive, who had a bit of a different take. He wrote an essay titled The Absurd, where he talks about mice. A mouse's existence isn't absurd because it isn't self-aware. It doesn't realize that it's just a mouse and its activities aren't important. But we have the ability to take a zoomed out perspective of our own lives, he says, and we can realize how ridiculous and unimportant our day-to-day activities are. But we still take ourselves so seriously. That's where the absurd comes in, according to Nagel. Mice are tiny to us, and we forget that we're tiny in the grand scheme of things. I dig it. But then he takes a different approach from Camus and says that if, quote, there is no reason to believe that anything matters, then that doesn't matter either. (laughs) And we can approach our absurd lives with irony instead of heroism or despair. Oh, so this jerk invented hipsters. Because everything's ironic with them? And with hipsters, yes. I mean, yeah, I suppose. He's just trying to get us to examine meaninglessness as a concept. (laughs) Right, he's flipping the meaninglessness on itself. If everything is meaningless, then the fact that it's meaningless is also meaningless. Yes, that's a bright spot, but what do we do with it? Nietzsche wants you to be better. Camus wants you to be defiant. We are self-aware mice unable to rise above our mousely strivings, yet we continue to strive regardless. That doesn't mean we have to be dramatic about it. (laughs) In the words of Oscar Wilde, life is much too important to be taken seriously. Nagel wants you to laugh about it. (laughs) What a dude. And that, ladies and gentlemen, rounds out our very first season. (laughs) We've rolled that boulder all the way to the top. And we'll be rolling it right back up for season two. (laughs) We'll have a little bit of an in-between season with a little extra content before season two kicks off. And I think we're going to try to reverse the formula a bit for season two. Instead of picking a topic and then talking, Mm -hmm. uh, what do you call it? The nonsense, the the pop culture stuff, where instead of that... Yeah, yeah, the the nonsense. Maybe we'll look at a movie and then like try to break it down philosophically or like take some sort of media and then break that down all right and uh you know i I, i'll try and help pick those out and it won't be just superheroes i promise probably so keep tuning in and keep expanding that big old brain of yours (laughs) thanks dude i meant our listeners you're at max capacity (laughs) that's fair Wholesome and Heathen do not endorse bowling for sport. Recreationally, they'll provide a pass. They also do not endorse pushing boulders up hills, letting them fall back down, and then pushing them back up again. Unless it's for a workout, in which case that's probably fine. Unless it's also for CrossFit, which is less fine. Unless you're the kind of person who does CrossFit and listens to philosophy podcasts, in which case, roll on, Sisyphus. Tell us what rock you roll at wholesomeandheathen.com.